I've been painfully aware of the time in here, and so uh, we found a way for us to get out around noon, and that is I'm going to preach my sermon, and then Sherry Stigall is going to give it to you, okay, the way she did on the deal there. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, I'll just try to cut it down some. How's that? Take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, if you... You know, I heard a guy say years ago that preachers are, are rare breeds, which is another way of saying they're just weird. And uh, so let me give you kind of, kind of insights into how weird preachers think, all right? I, I was getting ready for this message. I don't know if you noticed on the uh, sign out there, the title of it is Get Out of My Way. And uh, a lot of my sermon work uh, comes as I'm driving uh, and part of the title actually comes from that. I was driving this week and an ambulance was coming up behind me because I pulled out in front of him. And uh, <laughs> and uh, when I noticed that he was coming, I pulled off on the side of the road very quickly. But the guy in the lane next to me didn't do that and just continued to block the ambulance path. And the ambulance driver was laying on the horn. And I, you know, I thought, that's a pretty good picture. But um, maybe the better picture, and this is where weird, uh, weird thoughts are and how we as preachers think weird stuff. Uh, you ever wonder why we don't reenact the Black Friday morning scenes at retail markets all over the United States? Why we don't do that every Sunday in church? You know what I'm talking about? The rush on Black Friday right after Thanksgiving when everybody's got to get there and get the stuff. And, you know, only so many items are on sale, so we got to really push through and we got to get it. Um, I have yet to attend a church where that was the situation trying to get in on Sunday morning. You ever wonder why that is? Especially given the fact that, you know, we claim to have ultimate truth. Jesus says, you know, I'll give you life that will blow your mind. And uh, yet, somehow, we, we lose out on the, uh, the crowd part of it sometimes. Now, I'm not arguing for a crowd. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. I'm just interested in... In the reality of why we don't have people rush to Jesus. Now part of what I'm just saying I know equates going to church with getting to Jesus. And that's sometimes going to church is a problem for people trying to get to Jesus. That's a whole nother sermon probably. But whatever the case, uh, consider this if you will. The reality is that there are people outside of any given church. I don't really like the way that sounds too much, so let me kind of put it a different way. Christians and those who come to church on Sunday morning have a perspective on life. And our perspective on life, if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, is governed by who He is. But people outside of the walls of our church don't have that same perception. And we've been looking at, at Luke's gospel here in this little section from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 9. This mini-series I've called, Who Is This Guy? Because Luke regularly in this little section of scripture brings that question to mind. And he puts it on the lips of different people in different ways. But essentially they're asking the question, who is Jesus? And they're making determinations on who he is. So those of us inside the church, we have our answer to that. And I believe it's founded in ultimate truth, as we find in Scripture, Jesus Christ, as Simon Peter will say in chapter 9, he is the Son of God. Amen, preacher. Okay, now I got that out of my system. 
Get it in yours, all right? Jesus Christ, I don't, 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 I'm not trying to get you to talk. I just want you to think about the truth of what I'm saying. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Messiah, God in the flesh. Luke is working his way to that point of, of truth. Inside the church, we get it. People outside the church may not be so quick to affirm that. So how do we as God's people reach into that lost world and help them get to that truth? This passage of scripture that we're in, I think, is going to help us see a little bit of how to do that. We're in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 40 here in just a second. But here's the truth, okay? If, if you're going to have to leave early, uh, and you're going to hold me to my own self-imposed deadline to be finished by 12, all right? Uh, and I go two minutes over, here's the truth I want you to get, all right? When you're in a desperate situation, don't let anything keep you from Jesus, I'm pausing to let you read it, to let it sink in. And now I'm going to throw this at you. The problem that we often have is sometimes church people don't think we're in desperate situations very often. Let's look at this passage and see what we can find here. In the first part of this, uh, I call it episode one because uh, we actually have an episode within an episode Beginning in verse 40, we find the account of Jesus and this synagogue ruler whose name is Jairus and his daughter is sick and uh, ultimately is going to die. So he comes to Jesus and he asks him to come and help him. While Jesus is on his way to do that, another lady in a desperate situation steps into the story and it's her own little story and then we conclude that and move on with the story of Jairus and his daughter. So let's look uh, in verse 40, we find this statement. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but let's go ahead and read the next verse or so. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Verse 49, we pick it up down there, it says, and while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and all will be well, or she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and the mourning for her. But, she, but he, that is Jesus, said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, among other things, we'll get to the latter part of that in just a second. But here is a group of people, when Jesus says, this is not what it looks like, their answer comes out of their perception of who he is, and they laugh at him. She's not really dead, and they say, you're nuts. But before we get to any of that, I want to go back to verse 42, uh, 40, excuse me, because there arises here a subtle comparison that we find in Luke's gospel. And it's a little unfortunate. Our Bibles, uh, at least mine does, has a subheading between verse 39 and verse 40. 
The shame of that is that it interrupts the flow that Luke lays out there for us. And even though the story changes, the emphasis of what Luke has given us needs to be highlighted here. Because in verse 39, it's the tail end of the description of Jesus as he goes into this uh, section, I mean this, uh, uh, what's the right word, area of land, kind of like a county maybe is a good way for us to say it, that's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, he's been in Galilee. He goes across the lake, and he gets over into the region of the Gerasenes, and over there is this guy who has a demon. I'm not going to take the time to read that whole passage over there, but if you'll go back there and look at it this afternoon, you'll find a series of events there where Jesus goes in. This guy has these demons. Jesus steps into that. He always seems to step into our problem situations and he brings the power that is only his to it. And as he does that, those demons recognize who he is. It's significant in this section of Luke's gospel where he's asking the question, who is this guy? John the Baptist asks that. Herod asks that. His disciples asks that. Uh, Eventually, Jesus is going to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? But he gives us a definitive answers of all places from a bunch of demons and a guy. You are the son of God. When that happens, Jesus delivers that guy from those demons. Actually delivers those demons from that guy. You remember the story? This is where the demons say, don't just, don't just throw us out. What do they want? They want to go into the pigs that are close by. Are you all out there today? Okay, just checking. You know the story? So these pigs now, Jesus exorcises the demons. They go into these pigs, and what do the pigs do? They hook it for the cliff. They go over the cliff, and so here's the key part of it for all of us. Those, okay, now in the first service, I said, I don't know how to call, were they pig farmers or were they pig ranchers? Think about that. I, you know, I've heard pig farmers, and actually one of the men over there said, nobody knows pigs around here like I do. I said, you're not talking about your family, are you? He said, nobody knows pigs like I do. Those guys who do that like to be called hog farmers. Okay, so the hog farmers from that region. Now, remember, all of those hogs that Jesus cast those demons into went over the cliff, and they died. The hog farmers come out, and they, what do they say to Jesus. Let me just read it, if I can find it quickly here. They say to Jesus, verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told... Let's see, I don't think I'm far enough back. Verse yeah, 33, Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were elated about the change in this guy. That's not what it says. And they were afraid. The next verse especially. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. In other words, the eyewitnesses jump in. Verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. 
Now, make sure that we get the full effect of this. Jesus has done a work in the life of a guy who was beyond hope. He delivers him and establishes order and life for him. So much so that this guy who was out of control, over the edge, is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. Why would the people there want to kick Jesus out of their country? Now the verse says that they were afraid. They were filled with fear. Why would that scare them? I'm going to submit to you. It's a little bit of uh, maybe tying modern day into the text a little bit, which is always a little dangerous. But uh, I have to believe that there's an element of economic despair that set in with those guys. You see, this is not just, from their perspective, this is not just this guy who was without hope now is sane and everything's cool with him. It's not about that for them. They see the hit on their pocketbook. All of this whole herd of hogs now has gone over the cliff and now we're without our investment that was in them. And that scares them. Who is this guy who has that kind of power Whatever it is and whoever he happens to be, we don't want him here because he scares us, so let's get rid of him. And so they send him away. Now that's the background for verse 40. And now let's come back. Jesus is in the boat. He comes across back to the east, to the west side. He was on the east. He comes to the west side. And as he comes off of the boat and into the land of Galilee again, verse 40 says, in stark contrast to the ones who just kicked him out. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. What we find here is this emerging division about how to deal with Jesus. Those people, those hog farmers, and those Pharisees, as we saw last week, and some of the religious authorities are beginning to see Jesus and they see a side they don't like. We can't control this guy. He's swimming upstream. He's doing things that we're just not too sure is even right. Uh, And he's getting in our pocketbook in the process of that. And so we don't want anything to do with him. And so they begin to distance themselves. Listen, churches are full of people who have that perception of who Jesus is. You hear it in different ways. Ah, you know, those church people, they just want to get your money. See, the problem that we have as church people, if you want to wear that term... Uh, is that the way we perceive Jesus rubs off on the people that are out there. We live in a society that largely has no use for Christianity. And I guess it's partially because, like uh, I think Mahatma Gandhi is the one that said it, I would be a Christian if I didn't know so many Christians. And so that's kind of the picture of this. We're coming into verse 40 here and into this section. There is this emerging emerging division about who Jesus is and how they're going to relate to him. And we find this group of people in Galilee where Jesus has done this series of miracles and they're ready for him to come back. They've been the recipients of some of the great things that he's done. Think back through what we've seen in Luke's gospel to this point, how time after time Jesus steps into a situation and brings the power of God and the compassion of God and he puts it to work in the situation and things are better because of it. No wonder they want him to come back. There's benefit for them. 
So that gives me two truths I want to just kind of dangle out there for us today. Here's the first one. People are drawn to life. You understand what I mean by that? Boy, I don't really want to be on an anti-church kick here, but I got this soapbox here that I really kind of feel like I need to step on top of and get after it, okay? So let me tell you, here's the deal. When God gets at work in a situation, whether it's somebody's life or in a group of people like a church or whatever, when God is at work there, life is infused into the situation. There is a sense of God's presence that you just can't duplicate. If God doesn't show up, it's not there. That's what we find on this western side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been at work there. He's investing himself. People are changed. Dead are being raised to life. And there's life in that. And so there's this crush of people. And we see that through this passage. If we had the time, and I'm going to take the time to read the whole passage today. But we find this crush of people. Everywhere Jesus goes, these people are showing up. And they want more of him. And more of what he's doing. That doesn't stop with the days of the New Testament. That extends through history into our days. This morning, I spent some time with some of the folks of our church. As we rehearsed a little bit, some of the hand of God at work in a couple of people who have been part of our church for a long time. And we listened, I listened, and I listened as they talked. And, you know, this is how God used that person in my life. And, and without fail, the long picture of that was through these years of investment by this person, uh, we've seen evidence of God there. By definition, people are drawn to that. But the problem, and now I get to the soapbox part of it, the problem with us in church life is that when we taste that, that life, and people are drawn to it, when we lose that, we figure we got to find a way to duplicate that. And so we have all of these nice little strategies. I, I went to seminary, okay? There's, it's, it's not just a Freudian slip if somebody says they went to cemetery, okay? Seminary is full of death stuff. And the reason I say that is because many times our Baptist seminaries at least fall into the, and I'm not saying it's bad, by the way, I think, you know, guys ought to go. People ought to go. If they're going to be in the ministry, they need to go and they need to get all of the education and training they can get. But there's a downside. My dad said it to me this way. You should go to school, you should go to cemetery, seminary, and you should get all of the education you can. And five years after you graduate, you will have forgotten enough to be useful in a local church. Because here's the deal. If we're not careful... We taste a little bit of the life that Jesus brings and we fail to acknowledge that he's the one who brings it. And then we try to figure out ways that we can make it happen. And so we become the surrogate life givers, but actually there's no life there at all. So we just start doing stuff, programs, activities, and we wonder why people won't come do our stuff. By the same token, we ought to turn it the other way around and say, why is it when God starts moving in a group of people, they don't do a bunch of stuff, but people come to that? And the answer is because people are drawn to life. That's this side 
of the Sea of Galilee in this passage. The other side is the side of death where people say, you know, I don't want that. So that's the first truth. People are drawn to life. It's true then. It's true now. Here's the second truth I want you to get. Our values impact how we choose to deal with Jesus. You want me to, I'm going to go ahead and give you my answer to the question earlier. Why don't we have Black Friday type rushes on church? And the answer to that is because our values say, well, church is not as important as a deal on Friday morning after Thanksgiving. Our values impact how we perceive who Jesus is. If that previous statement is true, and it is, people are drawn to life, if that's true for us, then why isn't everyone a Christian? If Jesus is who he said he is, and he is, and he brings life, which he does, the truth of John chapter 10, verse 10, the latter part of it especially, is very relevant for us in our day and age. I have come that you may have life that is abundant. Take that Greek word and put it in modern language. It's the blow your mind kind of life. Well, if that's true, why don't we have a rush in our churches for people to be coming in here? Some of the answer to that is because the values that we adopt basically relegate Jesus to secondary status. Let me put it to you in the way we tend to live our lives as evangelicals. First of all, the way we sell Christianity to people is very much on a consumer basis. If you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, what happens? Ooh. Well, I thought sure you'd know that one. (laughs) If you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, what happens? You get diminishing returns on your investment of life. All right, let's put it in the religious sense. You're going to die and go to hell. Okay? You hear how consumer-oriented that is? And so we dress it up. If you will come and accept Jesus as your Savior, what do you get? You get to go to heaven. You know what? Both sides of that are true. But there's another reality in this that we have to get to. And that is that when you come to Jesus Christ and you trust him as your savior, you don't have to go to hell. You do get to go to heaven. But Jesus didn't just promise you can go to heaven and avoid hell. He says, you come to me and I will give you life that will blow your mind. I think people outside... The church are looking at people inside the church and going, I don't see that. I don't get that. And consequently, I don't need that. So I want to come back and I want to make sure that we're getting this. The the despair part of this. Remember what I said, that one truth? Uh, If you find yourself in a desperate situation, go to Jesus. Look at where we find this in this passage, okay? And I'm going to kind of rush through a couple of things here, but you can go back and study the whole passage. Here's where the desperation part comes in. Enter Jairus, all right? Let's say it this way. Uh, Jairus is a big shot. According to this passage, uh, and this is in verse 41, he is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, whatever else that means, and it means several different things, it means that Jairus was a big shot. He was probably a big shot in town. 
And by virtue of that position, they let him be a big shot in the synagogue. Synagogue was their local version of, of Jewish church, I guess. Is, that's an oversimplification, but that's basically what it is. And so he was the guy, as ruler of the synagogue, who got to make the decisions. If we're going to have a guest speaker, well, who's he going to be? And what are the passages we're going to look at? Get the scrolls ready and make sure that everything worked the way it was supposed to work. Okay, Here's why that's important for us. Remember how Luke is laying this out for us. There is this rising opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees, as we saw last week, they're starting to say, I don't know about this guy. And even they've already started having discussions about what are we going to do with this guy. And so there is this, among the religious elite, there is this problem with Jesus. And Jairus has a lot at stake with those guys. The ruler of the synagogue, if he is seen to be a sympathizer with Jesus, he might just lose his status. At the very least, he's going to have to talk to the Pharisees, and nobody likes talking to Pharisees, even today. Especially today. So Jairus has something on the line here. Let's put it in terms of today. If you have a lot on the line when it comes to publicly identifying with Jesus Christ, what could possibly push you into a position to choose to risk everything about your reputation for the cause of Christ? You know what will do it for me? Is if I have a daughter who's near unto death, which is exactly the scenario here. It says his daughter, his only daughter, is about to die. He is in desperate situation. He's heard of who Jesus is. He's drawn to life. And so he goes to him and puts his entire reputation on the line. If you're in desperate need, run to Jesus. That's the picture that he gives us. I could jump down further, and I'm not going to take the time to do it now, but that story of the woman with the issue of blood interrupts this one. And the scripture says she had spent all that she had on doctors, and nobody could fix her. So, Jesus is on his way to Jairus' daughter to deal with that situation. The crowd is pressing on him. The picture of that language for us is that it is just packed in and there's no room to even hardly move. And she says, aha, here's my chance. And so she slips in behind him and she just reaches out and grabs part of his garment. That's a picture of despair. So before we go any further, and we're almost done actually, Let me drive this home. How desperate are you for Jesus, really? I I suspect that in a crowd this size, that some of us are here today, and you bring in the weight of the world with you. You know, life has a way of dishing out pain in massive doses. And we bring that stuff in with us, and we walk in, And we're in pain. And maybe part of the reason that we're trying church today is to just say, I'm going to give this God stuff one more chance. And if that's you today, take a lesson from Jairus and from this woman of this passage. They don't seem to care who Jesus is as far as his official identity. They're not concerned with what the Pharisees have to say. They're concerned about their issue. And it is a desperate enough situation that they push towards him. And they won't take no for an answer. If that's you today, build your tent right there. 
Jesus Christ makes promises. Among the other promises, one of his promises is if you come to me, all who are tired and just worn out from life, he says, and I'll give you rest. He says in John 10, come to me. Uh, he said, I, I'll give you life that is abundant. Lots of promises he makes. The question is, what do you do with that? You can be like the hog farmers, and you can say, you know what, I don't want any of that. Or you can be like Jairus and the woman and say, you know what, I need that. Many of us have reached that point, and we've even moved past that point. We trust Christ as our Savior. We give Him our lives. And so we're sitting here in church today, and here's my question to you. How desperate are you for Him? And See, there's the rub. As Baptists, as evangelicals, we have historically done a pretty good job in getting the word out to say, you really do need Jesus as your Savior. But I happen to believe... One of the reasons we don't have Black Friday rushes on church every Sunday is because the people inside the church are not really desperate for Jesus anymore. I got my nice little Jesus fix. I don't have to worry about going to hell. I know I got heaven locked up. So I'm just going to kind of do my thing. You know, I read through Scripture. I read Paul, for instance. I'm not going to take the time to turn there in Philippians chapter 3. He talks about trusting in the flesh. And, you know, if anybody had reason to, I do. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and all that stuff about his, uh, his religious pedigree. But at the end of that, Paul says, And yet I count it all as loss so that I might know Jesus. How desperate are you for him? Not for the stuff of church. Not for the nice little attempts at life that churches seem to be so good at. Real life. Let's pray. This ought to be kind of an unnerving service. Because among other things, what we've tried to do in the song service, we've pushed you to the faithfulness of God and who He is and how much you can count on Him. The video that we showed was a challenge to how we respond to that same God. We just kind of throw our efforts out there if we throw them at all sometimes. And now the passage comes that we look at today and it reminds us that there is a deeper expectation of us than just to feel good about who Jesus is if you don't know Jesus as your savior that's where you got to start you may not be convinced yet that's okay I don't feel like I have to convince you the Holy Spirit does a great job at that but we'll talk about that if you need to talk about that we're going to have an invitation here you can come down we'll start a conversation we'll talk about what it means to trust Christ to see him as savior first so that's the first part of the invitation second part is for the rest of us are you desperate for him you know know the old chorus this is the air I breathe part of that says and I'm desperate for you 
Is that true of you in your relationship with Christ? Are you like the people on the western side who are welcoming Jesus because they've been waiting for him? Or are you like the people on the other side going, now nah, he's really a nuisance, he gets in my pocket, I don't need him. Invitation is yours. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with this time? What are you going to do? Father, take this time, use it for your glory. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.